Welcome to Breaking the Chain, where we deep dive into the lives and experiences of entrepreneurs looking to shake up, change, and innovate their industries. In this podcast, we explore the challenges, successes, and everyday ups and downs of individuals fighting in the trenches for their dreams to become a reality. I'm your host, Nathaniel Chapman, and today I speak to Anthony Gonzalez, CEO and co-founder of Force Impact Technologies, creators of the next big product to define the future of contact sports, the FitGuard. All right. Well, welcome to the first episode of Breaking the Chain. I'm joined today by Anthony Gonzalez, who's CEO and founder of Force Impact Technologies. Me and Anthony actually go way back, almost weirdly, 10 years, if you think about it. 10 years is when we met playing rugby together at Arizona State. So I've been extremely excited about launching this podcast and launching this episode with Anthony. So welcome. No, thank you. I appreciate you having me today. No, man, it's really cool to see you. Like, it feels very strange, given everything happening with COVID. We're literally doing this on a laptop. I'm hunched over a bunch of pillows <laughs> with a beer, chilled out, trying to reach out to you all the way over in, in L.A., so London, L.A. Across the world. Hey, I sometimes the technology piece, like, blows my mind. I can't, I actually can't believe we're doing this now and not in a, in a studio. Yeah, we're living in the future. So, look. I obviously, I, I know a lot about Fiat, and we, we've talked about this many a time going through your company. Anthony has an incredible story of where he's brought this company over the last seven years, which is what we'll dive into today. But I'd love for you to give us just an introduction to everyone tuning in for this first episode as what is Fiat Force Impact Technologies? What are you guys trying to accomplish? What Who are you? Yeah, thanks for the questions. I heard a good TED talk about always starting with the why. So that's where I'll start and and I'll share our mission statement. So our mission statement is everything we do, we do because we believe in making sports safer and we believe in making sports safer without altering the sports themselves. And so what that means is, you know, we're essentially selling safety as a service and we do that by way of our platform, which is a combination of hardware and software. Essentially what we do is we help reduce the risk of unidentified head injuries in sports by way of an instrumented mouth guard or gum shield. When I say instrumented, that means we have a sensor technology package that we put inside the mouth guard and it can measure rates of acceleration, both angular velocity and linear acceleration. Or in other words, how fast the skull is moving in time and space. So that's our principal product. That's the the core data harvesting mechanism we have. And what we do with that data, what we try to infer and extrapolate is how likely something is to occur. And so we've really built this entire platform around providing an entire ecosystem for a sports organization to manage their head health awareness. And it all comes down to our principal product, the FitGuard. This is this mouth guard or gum shield I was referring to. Essentially, in order for us to make sports safer, we have developed a new product that identifies heart impacts when they happen. And so, you know, the logic would prevail that if you identify when a heart impact happens, you do a much better job of ensuring an undetected injury doesn't allow an individual to continue to play with the damaged brain. Because when you do that, you expose yourself to a serious and potentially fatal condition known as second impact syndrome. And that's the core problem we're looking to address. How can we efficiently, effectively reduce the likelihood of second impact syndromes without changing sports. So banning heading in soccer is a rather arbitrary rule that we don't even know if it 
reduces the problem they're trying to address. And so we try to bring objective data, simply rates of physics, and take a more scientific approach to reducing the likelihood of these occurrences in more of kind of an actuary model where we're doing a lot of statistical analysis, a lot of you know, confidence intervals and kind of doing these, these risk analysis. But it all comes down to this core product that we had to develop so we could at least collect data to then begin to do those analysis. So classic chicken and egg situation. So is your product aiming to identify concussions? You know, this could never have existed even 10 years ago or five years ago. And I think it's incredible. Like I, I don't even know how you'd come up with something like that, but it's insane. Yeah, I'd be happy to tell you, but uh, allow me first to offer our, our legal disclosure. So we do not diagnose concussions. We don't even like to use the C word. We talk about head impacts. We measure rates of acceleration. We are not a decision maker. We're simply a way to monitor rates of acceleration. So how hard were you hit? How often are you hit that hard? And then which direction did that impact come from? You can use that information to infer a, a clinical pathway or a triage that would eventually lead to a physician who can make a diagnosis about a concussion, but no one besides a physician can make that determination. So we are not a medical device. We do not make any medical uh, claims, and we do not insinuate any level of injury uh, because that crosses what we like to call a regulatory threshold. Eventually, the trajectory of the company is to collect enough normative data where we can apply to our regulatory authority, known as the FDA here in the United States, and demonstrate the safety and efficacy of our claims. And once they review that, they will give us marketing approval by way of this 510k pathway that allows us to make statements like, oh, the FitGuard reduces X percentage rate of head injuries. Then we can actually start to market these, these claims. And so we can slowly evolve to eventually becoming a medical device, but there's no normative data. So like, how can you say your product's safe when you don't have a longitudinal study, when you don't have tens of thousands of impacts of all the different populations and considering all the bio-individuality that comes with different homo sapiens of sizes and skull thicknesses and temperature that they play in and elevation and, and you know the complexity of, of a brain injury is so grandiose that just looking at kinetic load will never allow you to infer, oh, that person's concussed because they got hit that hard. All these biochemical interactions and all these different variables from how hydrated you are to if you're cutting weight for mixed martial arts sports to, you know, potentially even the elevation that you're playing in. You know, we don't know how all these other data variables play in to the formula of, of head injuries, but what we've done is we've essentially invented a widget that starts to collect data. So we can begin the trajectory down that pathway where hopefully five, 10 years from now, there will be wearables that have just taken the physician's job out of their hand because there's been enough precedent and, and research to validate these things and at the very least triage it. So you don't have to worry. It's like, oh yeah, no, that dude should definitely go to a doctor for official diagnosis. Like he's got a 99% confidence interval that that is a head injury based off of kinetic load based off of cognitive assessments before and after the head injury based off of physical assessments such as balance or, or eye tracking. You know, there's all these comparables and it's kind of like a court of law. You know, here in the United States, we're a very litigious society, so I'll use that analogy. Yep. You need to build circumstantial evidence to get a conviction, right? So it's not just one piece of evidence. You have to have this and then this and that relates to this and all these things got to line up. And you're like, all right, well, based off of all this information, when I look at it holistically, I'm pretty confident here's the answer. 
but still it's probably going to end up going to a doctor, but we can push that boundary where our, our predictions and our modeling is more and more accurate over time. But it all comes back to in order to get the data, you have to invent a way to collect the data. And that's what we've been working on for the past seven years. And so if you extrapolate where we're headed, you know, now we got the thing and now we can start to make hypotheses, test clinical trials, yep. you know, have other people just buy our product to use in their clinical trials. Like we don't need to, you know, be the sole researcher. We, we really expect to work with other researchers so that they can pursue further academic and scientific understanding of how kinetic load relates to traumatic brain injury or just be using it as another reference point, another data set or even just identifying people who could then be used in a clinical trial for a therapeutic or a drug or a blood test or a bioassay. And there's like, hey, we need to concuss people. I need a thousand of them. Great, come to us. We'll tell you, you know, who has a high likelihood. You can onboard them into a clinical trial. And so our goal is to really shift how research is being done because previously there's such a big stopgate of like, how do you get people who you want to test with to a site and, you know, available and you know, uh, receiving consent all acutely within the time of this traumatic brain injury when a lot of these things are expressed and a lot of these biomarkers are active. You know, it doesn't help if you do that three weeks after an event. But coming back to where we started, because I think that's an important question. So you view yourself as a tech company. I mean, you obviously have, you're looking at all the information and the data and, you know, even in today's marketing across, I mean, data is a massive impact across all products. You know, everyone talks about the impact of data across any industry. Do you view yourself more as a tech company or do you, you know, you obviously have a product. You do have a, a thick guard that you do market and sell that people can buy and purchase individually, you know, if they're interested off the back of this podcast on tracking that data or that you sell to teams. So do you view yourself as, like I say, a product-based business or a tech business? Yeah, so, you know, that's a very interesting question and maybe I can just defer that and I'll get into it in my story because we had a, a pivot classic, what do you do? How do you categorize yourself? So, you know, I was in an MBA program at Arizona State, go Devils, very proud of <laughs> my uh, university that I went to. And one of my classes was creativity and innovations. I actually had taken an entrepreneurship elective and they tasked us with coming up with a solution for a personal problem we had. And so at the time I was training Brazilian jiu-jitsu and going to rugby practice and jiu-jitsu and to rugby practice. And the only translational piece of equipment I had was my mouth guard, my gum shield. And I noticed that I was taking that out of one bag and putting it into the other bag. At the same time, in the professional capacity, I was working for one of the largest uh, technology distributors in the world, Avnet Electronics. They have a global precedent and they are uh, component and semiconductor distributors. And when you need to buy you know, things to fill out a bill of material. They're the ones fulfilling orders and doing the logistics of getting them to your site for manufacturing. And my job was to, you know, be involved in that sales process. So I was familiarized with a wide array of components, sensors, hard drives, just technology on the masses because my job was to process orders. And I had come across an individual who was working on some race car stuff and he introduced me to MEM sensors and it just got the ball spinning. And I had a homework assignment to do. I had to come up with something. And so I had ordered, like, a, a, they called them demo kits. So it was just like a sensor package demo. You could just plug in, it worked. And I, like, mocked up a little prototype. I had this little sensor thing, and I had, like, an LED that I held in my hand just to show functionality. I was like, look, when I wiggle this thing, a light will go off. And, like, it was me doing all of the logic. I'm literally holding two different things yeah. and saying, like, oh, a computer would do this. And so, you know, I got a good score on that grade for the class. Like, oh, pretty cool. Like, I, you know, I'm doing work and school at the same time. It was very conflated. So was this really all started from an idea of like it was an assignment or were you, did you think yeah. at that time, like, oh, this could be, 
this could be a product or where you think this is for my MBA. I just need, this is a homework assignment. I need to get this done. Where were you then? Uh, yeah. I mean, I just had to uh, complete the class. You know, I was just in grind mode, right? Working 40 hours a week, doing six to 10 class on Tuesday and Thursday and eight to five on Saturday. So like there wasn't time to be entrepreneurial because I didn't have the intellectual capacity to think in those terms. When it's a taxing program, because you went to the WP Carey School of Business, you did your supply chain program there. I will, no bias there because I went there. (laughs) But great, look, great program, but very taxing program. And then going and doing the MBA there as well, you know, it is one of the top ranked MBA programs in the US. And then working 40 hours a week, I can understand why you'd have to be like juggling all this stuff, but how incredible something potentially could come from that. Yeah. And and thankfully that grind was only five weeks for those Saturday classes. But having after that, there was a startup competition on campus. I was like, oh, well, I got a good idea. I can pitch. You know, I'm rather gregarious and extroverted and, you know, I have a pretty open personality. And so we put together a crappy slide deck and I brought my crappy demo and we ended up winning five grand. I think we actually took second place and the first place chose the cash, which was a smaller amount, but we got $5,000 in legal services, which probably like the best seed investment we could have ever done because we were documented in a proper manner from day zero. Right. The company structure was done collectively with an attorney. We had partnership agreements. Like we were by the book set up as an entity and as a corporation And what that allowed us to do, it allowed us to have future investments, Yeah. right? Because whenever you get an investment, they go through your doctors, due diligence. Like you can't form a corporation right when you need to have the investment. And you could have missed an opportunity if your stuff isn't together because, you know, that investor who would have given you money is like, look, if you don't even have your your things in a line, like why would I give you cash, right? You can like lose someone that. So I was very fortunate to have that in-kind service and, and work with our attorney, Michael Houle, out in Phoenix, Arizona, And another thing I'll comment about about having good legal counsel is you got to trust these people because they you're putting so much trust in their competence and not all lawyers are created equally. And I'm so grateful that our attorney, Michael Houle, had startup experience and he had spent his professional career working with other startups. So he was our, you know, our anxious person by making recommendations of all the things that can go wrong. You don't need a lawyer for when things go right. You need a lawyer for when things go wrong. And if you don't articulate all of the what ifs and consider all of the factors, global pandemic, great example, all of these crazy things, oh, that'll never happen. How do you know to hedge against it by having it legally documented into a contract? You know, as I mentioned, America is very litigious. And so it's really important to have a good foundational underlying infrastructure in, in your documents, your bylaws, so that when you are trying to solicit professional investment or you win a startup grant, like your stuff is in a row, your money's not delayed, and you don't have to go figure that out when you're like in an upward trend and trajectory. How did you know two pieces to that? Because I got two good questions. One, how did you know, like, was there a point after that project? So you delivered that project in your class and you went, I want to invest, like, I want to put this into a competition. At that point, you must have thought there was a product here or what was going through your mind then? Why enter the competition? I have a lot of ideas, Nate. I talk a lot. (laughs) I don't even remember half the things I say. You know, I wouldn't say that's a fault by any means, but I'm constantly coming up with ideas. I mean, you just ask some of my friends. I text them all the time like, hey, what about this idea? Hey, what about this idea? What do you guys think about this? I have launched and failed and not launched, but thought about and pondered 
business idea since I was a little kid, man. Like I used to go around in elementary school and collect all the cookies that kids didn't want at lunch that they got for free and then sell them in the after school program because kids were hungry and then have snacks. Right. And then I'd sell them for a quarter and I'd go like buy stuff from the snack store. And like I had, I've had like hustles all day long. You know, I grew up in a, a fairly affluent background. You know, I, I was able, I didn't have to work through university, but I chose to right? So like I didn't need to. And so that allowed me to be more risk adverse. It allowed me to take and expose myself to do things that may not be profitable or productive or have a short-term loss because, you know, I, you know, I knew that I, I didn't need to thank God to my parents, you know, for covering college, you know, and so that allowed me to, to do things. And so it did help to kind of have that mindset of like, Hey, if you take risk, there is a potential for better reward. Yep. So I was always taking risks. So like to me, spending six hours investigating a business opportunity, it's never time wasted. I just found out that that wasn't a good business opportunity. So like, I didn't think like, Oh, this is going to be it. It's like, Oh, here's another one. Here's another thing I've come up with. You know, I, when we played rugby, I took the initiative of doing like a thousand dollars in rugby apparel and I just bought it all by myself. And I started slanging rugby apparel. Hats, beanies, sweatshirt. Like I ate that. That was a, a lot of money for an undergrad. Like it was my own money. And, you know, I made like two grand and I gave the money back to the club, right? I broke even. It was just, I liked the idea of the hustle and the grind and the initiative and trying to make a buck, you know, and as I was able to give some money back to the club yeah. as well as break even. And that to me was a great success, right? It's almost like when you play in Vegas and if you spend all weekend and you break even, you're like, oh, that was a good weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I was entertained. I felt like I was stimulated. And to me, you know, entrepreneurship has always been a, a stimulating activity. You know, it is a hobby. It is something you master. In, in many aspects of my life, I seek to master things. I'm a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I've been training over 14 years. You know, I, I've mastered that. You know, I, I feel that business is analogous because over enough time and given enough drilling and failure, you t- master aspects, certain skill sets, certain philosophies, approaches, and mindsets. You know, that never directly correlates to success, but what it does is it gives you such awareness of the environment that you start to piece things together. You start to think on a different level of consciousness. And you'll see that with other masters of whatever their craft is, they're operating on a different plane of existence when they're in their element. And to me, you know, I, I didn't know this, this was a not concept, but like, that's what I've reflectively learned from being involved in all these activities. They all just help to where I am today. So like my experience, my reality has formed me to be successful in my current role as a CEO of fit because I've had all those, we can call them failures, but I just call them experiences. You know, they happened objectively. So you're, you're here now, you're, you're doing your master's degree, you've gotten this five grand, you've thrown that into legal. Where did you go from there? Like, what was the next step? Partnership agreement. You know, I brought on my co-founder immediately. I've been working with him from day one. We did our first pitch together, won the five grand together, getting that buttoned up. You know, you may not think you need a partnership agreement, but when things go wrong, it's all going to come down to what's in the partnership agreement. Yeah. What's in black and white. Exactly. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, that was good because it felt, you know, you should never be a solo founder, in my opinion. I mean, maybe there's some some specific business opportunities where that's acceptable. But if you're trying to launch, you know, a larger startup where you're going to get institutional funding, you need an individual where you can kind of hedge your decisions. And, you know, that's one thing that I have appreciated from day one that I've always taken a democratic approach to team decisions. We've included everyone. I've never had to 
pull the CEO card or say like, oh, I'm the majority or like kind of some of the things you may see in Hollywood yeah. where yeah, yeah. stereotypes like, well, I'm the boss. So that's the decision. I'm making an executive order. F you if you don't like it, right? Like I had just chosen, like we're a team company, you know, we're all athletes. So we just take a team approach. Yep. And at the same time, when things went wrong, I didn't feel so guilty. It's not like I made a decision like, well, we made that decision together. So it, it is what it is. And so it allowed me to sleep better at night. It allowed me to have some peace and almost a religious type of comfort because there was a collective. And was, was he involved in the early stages of the project? Or did you just think, you know, this is the guy I'd like to help me build this company? Or was he involved at the earlier stage of your idea? Yeah. So he was a f- essentially one of the victims of people who I bugged with my ideas all the time. <laughs> right. And that was because we were training jujitsu um, for many years. And then ironically, he was working at the same place I was. So he was my coworker right. and someone who I saw. So like I saw this individual, my co-founder, who you know, now we're really good friends, but like six times a week and we were colleagues, right? I saw him at jujitsu, saw him at work, he worked in a different apartment, but you know, sometimes we'd have lunch together. And so I was always bugging like, what about this? What about this? And he is very similar to me and very much the opposite. He's very conservative, always worried, doesn't think things are going to work. And I love that. It was like a challenge, like, because if I can convince him to say like, oh, that is a good idea. I know I was onto something because he was so pessimistic about everything that when I piqued his interest, I was like, whoa, okay, okay, yeah. we can do this. That's cool. And you know, from the get-go, he's like, what? this is not going to work. This is the crapshoot. That's so expensive. You can't do that. I was like, but we can't. Why can't we? Like, no is never an issue. I was always that kid who didn't follow the rules when I was younger. And so, like, no to me was like, no, that's no for everyone else. But, like, I could probably get away with it, right? <laughs> yeah. Entitlement, arrogance, I don't know what it is. It's just a personality trait that I just often feel that the rules don't apply to me. They should probably just apply to other people. And so that mindset has often shaped how I've gotten myself into positions where people go, how did you do that? I was like, oh, well, I just didn't listen. Just went for it. Yeah, I have mastered the art of being shameless. I do what I want all the time. I wear what I want. I dress up. I get a fancy <laughs> dress for no reason. I am just me, man. I'm, uh, I'm living the life that I choose to live, and I don't care what other people think about it. And that confidence I mean, it translates into being a good speaker and being able to introduce myself and not feeling shame or worried about judgment. You know, one of my first jobs was cold calling. Yeah. 300 calls a day. I had the same internship from Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith for Morgan Stanley. So I had the Morgan Stanley summer internship, cold calling, and the financial crisis of 2008. So I was the summer of 2008 in downtown LA, Morgan Stanley, calling people during the worst financial crisis of our previous times, you know, the new normal notwithstanding. But again, being rejected on the phone and having to talk to people just built up personality. It built charisma and it shaped me. And then I learned like, I don't care if someone doesn't want to talk to me. That's okay. I bet that served you so well because I agree. I think at, at the point where you need to learn how to take rejection, you know, the amount of people I looked at throughout my career or people that have come to a business that can't handle rejection, I think it's it's tough, like how you can actually survive in a business world or be an entrepreneur because you do like you have to take so many notes and it does feel personal, I imagine, when you start. So to get an internship like that early, you know, when you were younger and, you know, go through it, even if you didn't come out working at that company, you probably took a lot of skills from that. I did that also because eventually that I guess was that's where you were. You've got your legal agreements, you've got your partner, you're moving to the next step. Was the next step then to start pitching this idea, start trying to raise money? Yeah. And I had actually pitched it internally to Avnet, the company I worked for. And I basically was told like, hey, kid, get out of here. You got a good idea. 
and this is the worst place for you to be. This big, old, slow, clunky cruise ship of a company is not gonna support innovative ideas. And this was coming from like an executive in the company, right? At the time, you know, they're a hundred year old company. They started in like 1920, they started in like radio. So like, they're just very archaic. And you know, they were still using fax machines, right? This is in 2013, right around then. And so they were just cut, you know, just switching over to like new concepts, right? They were kind of set in the ways that this is how we've always done things. And that was really good advice because I actually ended up, ended up leaving that company and leaving to go pursue this concept. Uh, we ended up raising $100,000 in friends and family investment in 2014. And I actually got $50,000 of that investment from people on the internet who I've never met before on a forum. Wow. I, you just posted on a forum. You just went, we need, this is the idea. This no is- shame. I said, I need money. Here's the idea. Wow. Who wants to be involved? And, and, you know, I don't want to talk too much about their background, but yeah, like $50,000 from people I've never met, you know? So I was like, oh, okay, you can do this. That's really cool. Like, was that in that kind of market? Was it a forum for entrepreneurs or for seed investment? Like, cause that's obviously a big wedge, a big wedge of your initial investment. Yeah. And secondly, it's illegal. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll leave it then. This was something that I didn't know being ignorant and naive that you can't publicly solicit to unaccredited investors. That is a breach of, in the United States, the SEC fundraising laws. Interesting. In order to solicit investing, you need to verify their solicited investor. That's why you always see disclaimers at the bottom of emails or posts. This is not an unsolicited request for investment. We only seek credit investors only. I didn't know these things. I would never have known that. I didn't care to look. And so I just did it. And I had to go fix that up legally. We had to go verify after the fact because, you know, I don't often look into the rules because I probably wouldn't follow them anyways. And so a lot of things I had just done, which in, you know, hindsight, when talking to lawyers, like, hey, man, like, you can't do that. You can't just go post on forums that you're trying to raise money. And like, we're glad that these people serendipitously met the qualifications of being an incredible yeah, investor. Yeah. But that's to stop people from scamming old ladies and getting money from the church and just like taking advantage of people who don't know how to be making investments. So they shouldn't be. It makes a lot of sense. Right. So it is a very good societal rule. But I often, again, don't think the rules apply to me. So like, yeah, that is good for society, you know, but hey, I took a risk, worked out, got the hundred grand, blew through that real quick, learned a lot about how difficult hardware is, a lot about having good documentation for for work orders. I remember one of our prototypes, we spent like 12 grand in getting a prototype built and made and it didn't work. And he said, oh, well, you have to pay me to debug it and I'll tell you why it doesn't work. Like, what do you mean we paid you to make it? He's like, (laughs) yeah, "Yeah, but you never said it had to turn on. Like that was like, I remember distinctly the quote in his email that like we didn't specify in the scope of work that it had to turn on after it was made, right? So just like little things like, yeah, I guess you're right. We didn't specify it had to turn on. I thought that was an implication of us paying you to design and manufacture it. But, you know, lesson learned. So that that was a line, he was trying to say a line in his contract was like, oh, this contract doesn't actually say, like, get there, here's a model, here it is. It wasn't a deliverable. He made it, but it didn't specify that it had to be work. And if we wanted him to look into why it didn't work, we would have to pay him per hour. Wow. Exactly. And so now all of our is, and it has to work, right? Something that sounds like, oh, that's so silly. Why are they putting this in here? Well, it comes from being burned in the past. That's got to be a hard thing to think of as well, because you had this concept, you get this funding, and then you decide you take this 100000 to build a prototype, which is new. I mean, how do you even know where to go get the talent or find the engineer? Because I always thought this as a as a startup with any kind of product or technology, 
aren't you a little afraid of the rights that you might lose or how someone might pick up that technology? Because you don't get a chance to build a long relationship with that person. And then you go, this is what we want to do. Here's maybe the idea or the sensors we want to use it in. How do you find that person? Yeah, so I've always been less concerned about people stealing my intellectual property because to me, ideas are a dime a dozen. All about execution. As I mentioned, I've had hundreds of ideas throughout my life. I had the idea for Snapchat in 2008. I just had no ability to make Snapchat, but I had come up with it. I talked to people, I have emails about it. Like I had that idea, <laughs> but I had no ability to execute. So like, what does it matter that I had the idea? But here you are speaking to people who could execute it. Or did you not even care? I didn't care. It's it's like assuming your vendors in China are going to steal your IP. It's like, maybe, maybe you got a really good idea, but like chances are like they don't want to because like you're super risky, right? right? People are still logical and they're going to face the same hurdles I'm going to face. Like they have a career and you know, that's another thing being a young entrepreneur fresh out of a program is, you know, I didn't have a mortgage at the time. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have any kids. And so my ability to assume risk was far greater than these older individuals, more developed in their career paths, more used to uh, a salary. And, you know, that's a big jump for them. Yeah. And to me, I was coming out of undergrad, eating ramen, you know, <laughs> just living the grunge life. I was a vagabond in Asia for eight months. Like I've bummed around. So I was used to being a bum. And so like, I just kept bumming and slumming. And that was it. That was my normal because like I was, you know, living off of a few grand a month at the time. I had taken out student loans from my MBA program to quit my job. So like I took, I took out capital that was supposed to be used for educational purposes and a repurpose it to start my company. And, and I didn't think of that. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of stuff for you. Like if you think of the seven years you put in, even a good idea, it, t- it takes a lot of execute. Like I, you know, didn't even think of that. Like you've had to really slug it out for this, for this idea. Yeah. And, you know, most people wouldn't be able to, and had someone told me, I probably would have not done it. <laughs> right. So like ignorance is bliss. I was fresh and young and unjaded by society. And I had no resentment. I hadn't been burned. I didn't have you know, monthly expenditures really, right? Like I didn't have to pay for health insurance. Well, here in the US, you would have to do that Mm. because, you know, I was able to do it up to 26 through my parents. You know, I I could just bring in enough money to get a place to live and, you know, train jujitsu and like work on on the product. And so, and my co-founder stayed at his job, right? So I was able to kind of still pierce in to, to use him, but, you know, I was really organize everything, really project management, putting everything together, having meetings with him, you know, a few hours a week as appropriate. But coming back to your, your question, you know, you just do it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you get these people is you work with people, you learn, and you like realize that guy was too expensive. That guy took advantage of us. He didn't know what he was doing. He burst in documentation or this is right. I mean, I think we had gone through six CTOs before we got to our current one, or maybe our current one's the sixth. And when I say CTOs, like we had some people to the extent where we had like agreements in place and we were giving them equity and like you know, they weren't in it. And like, so got to, got to get rid of them. We had someone at one point who kept our prototypes and we actually had to get the Dean of, of ASU involved because he was another student and he wouldn't give us our stuff back. So like there were plenty of times where we were in predicaments and situations. And even if you have legal paperwork, like things still happen and you start to learn how different personality types operate, you know, based off of job types. So engineers, I've learned to interact with a little bit differently. I tend to be a little bit more quiet, more reserved, calm, introverted, if you will. Yep. 
And so I, that, that code switching or being able to put on different pet masks of my personality, depending on who I'm interacting with, is a way of assimilation and adaptation that, again, you learn as a skill. Yeah. And so when you work with enough engineers, you can kind of piece together who might be helpful. And you know, working with good partners and good suppliers, so you can trust them where they're not always going to charge you for every conversation you have. You know, those, how do you find that? So it's like saying, how do you find a good friend? Got to meet a lot of people. Exactly, right? And so there's no one answer, but being willing to expose yourself to doing it wrong so that you can do it right eventually. There's a quite an interesting question I like off the back of that because so many people have products, they get the funding and they want to bring someone in that can bring that technical knowledge. And like you say, you have to offer equity or, or look at creative agreements to bring them on board, but then it doesn't work out. So do you give any advice to anyone to say, look, if you really need to build a technical agreement that gets someone involved with the business but isn't cut them in so that when you have to cut them out, you have to pay them or something. How do you go about and do that? Or Yeah, it comes down to your vesting schedule. And so I'll get a little, use some business terminology, but there's something called an ESOP, an employee stock option plan. And if you're at a stage of the company where you can even have an ESOP, that's good for you, right? LLCs can't because they have units. So in the United States, I'm talking about a C corporation. You have shares. You can carve off and allocate our partition of those shares known as an employee stock option plan. And what you do is when you grant these shares, you put everyone on a vesting schedule. Right. Side comment, they should always be options, not straight shares, because to give them shares, they're taxable and they're considered uh, a financial class, an asset, and they have to reflect those on the taxes of that year that they earn those shares based off the valuation of your company. So you always want to grant options because then they have the option to person, so they actually incur the taxation, which is really big when you're you know, trying to inflate your value of your company and giving someone 100000 and the tax man be like, all right, give me $30,000 cash because you have $100,000 in fictitious shares, you're going to get yourself into a burden. So I digress from that. Coming back to the employee stock option plan and the vesting schedule, we've always found it very successful to split it down the middle. 50% vest over time, 50% vest over milestones. Sometimes we didn't even have those milestones established. It was like, yeah, we'll come up with some milestones, and when we do X, you'll get a chunk. When we do this, you'll get a chunk. But at the same time, you'll be earning the other 50% over time. So we're just splitting up the compensation package to reflect a time scale and deliverable scale. And that you know, had enough checks and balances, is it, where everyone was pretty much happy. And when the people who left, they didn't get their milestones, they got however much prorated of their time, and they're still on our cap table. Gotcha. Okay. So no ill will. They went on to other projects. And, you know, we were operating in, in concise sprints, right? Because when you're doing hardware, it's very capital intensive. So you have to go design, lay out, procure components, manufacture, assemble, receive the hardware, and then test, validate, right? So we can kind of do a project, a phase, an iteration, and then like, all right, now we need another 80 grand to do this again, right? right? So like... We, we could sprint and then stop, pause, and sprint and then pause. And so that's why we had a lot of transition is after like a project, after a sprint, after an iteration. Hey, this last dude made it. Okay, well, we're going to work with this dude now. And so, you know, that's because we didn't have a burn rate. We didn't have salaried employees. I wasn't taking a draw from the company. We had very low. And so everything was rather budgeted ahead of time. And then we'd go raise the money and then get the money to deploy. And so that led us into our acceptance into an accelerator program, Make in LA in Los Angeles, and it was a hardware accelerator program. How many prototypes have you gone through by that point? Or were you still kind of in development phase before you went through that accelerator program? I want to say four, like, and we're counting the first one where I was holding in my hands as one, yeah. right? So like we did one and then we made a little bit better and we made one like proportionally much, much larger, like it could fit a gorilla yeah, yeah. just because it was easier to show, right? And then we didn't have to make things small. 
And then once we showed that it worked, then we worked on miniaturizing, right? So like, don't be afraid to show your minimum viable product at a different scale or proportion if it's easier to do. Because conceptually it's the same thing and you just go, and now imagine it's smaller and that's what we need your money for. We're going to miniaturize, which is much better than saying, oh, we're gonna use your money to build something. Mm. It's like, no, we've built something and now we need your money to make it smaller, right? So framing and contextualizing your ask based off of what you're gonna deliver is really, really important. So we had always tried to, to make it so we weren't asking for a bunch of risky things to be invested in, but it was very logical. And I suppose investors want to see that you've hit milestones as well. So if you're still working on the same prototype and you have nothing to show from it four times down the line, it's probably a lot harder to raise money at that stage than it is if you have something like, say, working but a bigger a bigger unit. And then you've got a story of where you're trying to go, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, we constantly had to fight the battle of why has this taken you so long? I've had investors straight up saying like, I'm saying no, because it's taken you this long to get here. And that to me is a red flag. So like, I don't want to do due diligence. I don't know all the background, but just objectively, the fact that it's taken you four years and you've only gotten this far, you know, I'm going to pass. But you know, hardware is hard. It costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of different skill sets, a lot of people from different backgrounds in order to make something tangible. And so we never let that dissuade us. We actually joined a hardware accelerator program because they specifically work with startups that are physically manufacturing things. And I believe it's much different skill set than tech stars where you can throw a bunch of developers into a room and then push out code and you know scale really rapidly. Like our business model didn't work like that. And back to your original question before I dove into this is we had been positioning this as a tech startup. Yeah. We're a consumer product. We're a tech startup. We're a tech startup. We went into this hardware accelerator program. We we're trying to do sports tech. We got... I believe $75,000 from that investment. Um, and right before that, we are actually on a national television show called Make Me a Millionaire Inventor. It's similar to Dragon's Den or, or Shark Tank. And we actually received a $100,000 investment from uh, a billionaire. His name is Chris Birch. His wife co-founded Tory Birch, uh, which is a high-end fashion line. And that was cool. High fives. We're on the TV. I did the whole crying thing. Oh, this is so great. Oh, my God. I'm happy. You have to send me that link. What was that like? You had to go on stage. It was like aired on TV. You knew it was going to be on TV. I mean, this was over eight weeks that they filmed wow. this. So like this was like a full on reality show. We, we took up the, you know, the half of the segment and we were the first show. So we were their debut show. So they're really riding on this. No, I don't want to get too much into the details, but we walked away with $100,000 with a billionaire on the cap table. And I'm, I'm pointing that out because it's important to come back later in the story. Got into this accelerated program, like, oh, we're making it, man. We were on TV. We're an accelerated program. Like, we're following. Like, they were writing the show Silicon Valley on HBO as we were living. Right. Like, at the same time, man. Like, I was, li- I was on TechCrunch Battlefield. We displayed at CES on 2016, pitching to, like, the CEO of Ford. And, you know, we had a, a mock prototype. We were able to demo some stuff. And our prototype just wasn't all the way there. It was still a minimum viable prototype. It was more advanced minimum viable, but conceptually, we still had a lot of stuff to work on. And we had essentially blown through our capital. And I had at that point been for 2014, 15, 16, you know, about three years with no job or income. You know, I was doing Ubering. I was going and doing manual labor. You know, I have an MBA and I'm out there doing hauling stuff just to get cash. Like I was hustling. And we were running out of cash and things were not looking good. We took a $175,000 bridge loan from friends and family as like a Hail Mary. And we 
brought on another CTO and he, I don't want to say burned us, but he didn't live up to expectations. We got into litigation where we were about to sue him because he felt he owed money. But basically what it boiled down to is he quoted us and he it was harder than he expected and he wanted us to pay him more money. Wow. So even though we were right, we had no money to <laughs> sue him, right? Litigation costs money. So like, and he's like, well, I'm not going to give you all of your engineering files to make more until you pay me. So he had put up the stop gate where he, we didn't have any access to anything. And he was just delivering stuff. And he did that on purpose. He contrived a situation until he was fully paid. He wasn't releasing design files. So we had a good prototype, but we couldn't get it and couldn't make any more and couldn't move forward because this guy was essentially extorting us and holding us hostage. That's incredible. Long story short, we failed. I ran out of money. We didn't have any debt. We didn't have to file insolvency. We didn't have to go any business because we didn't have any salary employees. Everyone was on contract. Most of our costs were variable, you know, operating the sprints. So once that kind of had come to a conclusion and we had depleted our capital, I mean, that was it. I had mentally prepared myself that it was over. And uh, my wife, current wife, then fiance said, Hey, give it a good try. Go get a job yeah. <laughs> as lovingly as she could. Like hey, good, good job, you know, pat on the butt, get back out there. But it'd been four years at this point or three or four years you put into it. Yeah. I started my new job at the start of 2017. So like, yeah, right at the end of 2016, that was, you know, worst time of my life. 2016 was a horrible year because Donald Trump got elected anyways. So it was just like, my life was just falling apart macroly, microly, like I just felt miserable. Founders depression is real. You know, I was super, I took my grandparents' money, my aunt, my mom, like a lot of my family members and none of them were asking me for it, but like I took them their money, right? Like I had told them I was going to make it and I didn't. And I didn't know what to do because like I did everything I thought was right. I, I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, I was ignorant to the lack of information I had by being young and naive, which is also a benefit, right? Because then you're not jaded and you don't self-filter. But at that time, I had got a new job as a development manager for California's Life Science Trade Association, Biocom. And so I was now exposed to the sciences where I'd previously come from like a business and hardware engineering. I was now responsible for engaging in the life science community with researchers, universities, academics, you know, helping people set up, you know, bio manufacturing lines and dealing with regulation and policy. And, and I was kind of this parent nonprofit that sat over the entire industry. And California is the largest, you know, life science industry in the world. Yeah. I think it's 10 times bigger than Hollywood. So think about that for a second. In California, life sciences are 10 times bigger than all of Hollywood put together. And so the numbers there are in the hundreds of billions. And so I was like, that's it. We're not a consumer tech product. We're a life science company. That's why it's taken us four years to get this long. Like I didn't even know why we were positioning it as a consumer product. And then people were judging us as a consumer product. Oh, well, it's taken you four years and $700,000 and you still have like a flimsy working prototype. Versus if I just said, hey, we're a life science company, like, oh, that's pretty good. You've only oh, spent yeah. 175000 and, and you're, oh, you know, you're already four years into this, man. Like you're definitely on the right track. And so reframing all of our investment documents, all of our vocabulary and diction to reposition ourselves mentally as a life science company who has a hardware product, but has this different population from which we're soliciting investments from allows people to contextualize and where to put us in their mental bucket and view us differently. Yeah. So at this stage, before you went and became a, a life sciences company and kind of it changed that direction, you were you had stopped at this point and you thought, actually, I need to just work and it rekindled or were you still kind of working in the background? Well, as I mentioned, like we didn't have to file 
any official closing documents. So we, I mean, it just was like my email was paid for. Like my company's always just been an email address, right? Like we don't have any offices. I don't have any equipment. You know, we don't make these mouth guards. Everything's been third party contracted out. I have a great supply chain because that's my background in, you know, I don't want to touch my product. In life sciences, I've heard this has a name. It's called the virtual company. I didn't even know that's what we were, right? Like there were so many things that were already established that if someone like, had pulled me over in 2013 and said, hey kid, let me put you on the right path. We could have like jumped forward four years. But again, it all led up to where I was today because then I had a very solid electrical engineering understanding. I don't want to say background because I don't know how to actually do it, but I could sit in a meeting and conceptualize things and follow the, the terms being used. And now I was exposed to this life sciences. And so when we repositioned the pitch and I had this background of electrical engineering and the sciences, I could really wow investors. So we ended up, this was from like the end of 2016 till for about 18 months, I was just grinding, working at the day job, working on my startup. Because mentally, it's like, oh, I've already done this before in my MBA program, and now my MBA program is just my startup. And so I just had the same mentality, just like work all day, work in the startup all night. That's what you do on the weekends, go to pitch competitions, using my, my sick days and vacation days to go to conferences to like work. So I was taking days off of the day job to work at my startup. Right. So just like grinding it out, man, because like it's like, what do I have to lose? To me, it was a sunk cost. The money's been deployed. The capital's been spent. I have what I have. So I can only go up from here. Right. I'm constantly optimistic because, you know, that's one of the ways to be successful is to force yourself to be resilient with mental fortitude. And I believe that is a skill. You can mentally develop fortitude by forcing yourself by to be uncomfortable to practice that. You know, endurance training is another example. You know, when I work out, a, a, you know, I'm an athlete. And so a lot of my training, I just do it until I'm exhausted. It could be a little weight. And so same thing with the business. Like I just keep doing it. And it's like, what if I get a startup? And again, I'm pretty shameless. So I email people, I apply to all the startup competitions I approach. I call it a stock shotgun approach, right? If it's a numbers game, if I expose myself enough times to these nodes in the network, eventually one of those nodes is going to respond back to me. You know, long story short, speeding up to 2018, I've been working in life science for 18 months. I've understand SBIR grants. We got one of those cooking in the books. That's a, a form of, of grants here in the US that you can win as a company to do some scientific research. So that would be like $200,000. I know I needed an app built and a mobile to pair with our hardware, but I know I needed cash to pay for that. And so I said, well, I don't actually need cash. I just need someone to make the app for me. So instead of going to raise money to spend money on a mobile app, I went to people who make mobile apps and I say, hey, you make me a mobile app and I'll give you equity. Let's just leave the cash out of this, right? So I arbitraged, you know, currency is just a, a medium of exchange, but it's not a requirement. Bartering is where we came from. That's what we've developed as homo sapiens. We've bartered for tens of thousands of years before currency, this fiat currency, right? So like, you don't need to have money. You just need to find someone who's willing to exchange. You know, price and value are very different. That's a different discussion, but people may value your equity more than the cash and vice versa. We took a ton of value out of the fact that they were going to deliver a working application. And if they were going to accept shares as payment, I knew that mobile application was going to work because then their payment would be no good, right? So they had a shared interest in our success because their payment was correlated to how good of an output they delivered versus a contractor is different. Don't app development companies get approached by these ideas all of the time? All the time, especially apps. And how do you find someone willing to take a punt on your business? It was rather serendipitous because at my day job, that's how I found these people because they called into the day job. I was calling them and then I sold them on something else, right? 
And I got them to join at the day job. They're part of our members. We formed a relationship. And so it just grew, right? I was just constantly networking, constantly talking about it. And, you know, the day job and the startup were very conflated on purpose. I, I was wearing both hats because it helped. It helped me break the ice of the day job so I could get people to join the association. And the association taught me more about how to be better at my day job. Right. So like I was on budget for my day job too. I wasn't slacking off. Like I was hitting my numbers. You know, I, I did not quit. I, I was on par for what I was expected to do. And that, you know, so I was essentially encouraged to do my day job, which again, just had this cyclical feedback effect. Long story short, got them to convince. And then serendipitously, my co-founder who was still working at Abnet where I had previously quit, we had been bugging them for years and years. And they had a CEO regime change. A new guy came in and I believe that he really just liked us. At the end of the day, the reason he chose to invest in us and join this mobile development company who, who gave us some money as well was because he liked who Bob and Anthony were. My co-founder's name is Bob, my name's Anthony. And I cannot stress enough how important likability is to your investor. If he doesn't like you, he's not going to trust you. If he doesn't trust you, he's not going to give you money. Sorry, should use some gender neutral pronouns. There can be some female investors out there as well. Most definitely. Exactly. And so it's important to develop personal rapport, to talk about your family, to ask them about what they're passionate about, what gets them up in the day, and have a conversational engagement and less formulaic and sales, like, oh, well, here's my EBITDA, and here's the pitch, and just get writing into it, and then you're nervous, and then you talk, and then he's like, okay, oh, you're going to give me money, right? It's like an awkward first date. Like, I, I really can't stress enough how you need to develop relationships with people, and the people who like you and trust you, they're more likely to give you money. And I don't mean that in a manipulative sense. It's just a foundational relationship. You know, and so when you understand how that works, that's what you should aspire to do. You don't aspire to go get investments. You aspire to build relationships. Those relationships lead to investments. Anthony, do you think that, that is a natural gift or can somebody learn that skill set? That it's kind of like people who have, you know, really nice bodies. Like, yeah, I'm sure some of them are genetic, but at the same time, even though they are genetically depositioned, they spend a lot of time doing fitness. And analogously, you know, even though I have this innate personality trait that allows me to be you know, more open and extroverted, I practice that. I drill and drill and drill by going to CES and standing on my feet for 10 hours a day, pitching nonstop, back to back to back, years and years and years, right? Like we went to CES, we went to so many conferences. I had so many things, you know, we were going to be on Shark Tank and I met the producers at Shark Tank from being the best pitcher at an event where anyone could come and set up a table and pitch that day. And you just had to stand there for eight hours and pitch anyone came by. And I was just on it, just grinding and grinding. And so like I had pitched thousands and thousands of times. So yes, I have a trait that allows me to feel comfortable doing that, but just because you may be underdeveloped in that skill set doesn't mean you can't be on parity with me given enough experiences, time, and effort at it. Just like, oh, I'm not strong. It's like, well, no, you're just underdeveloped. Go lift some damn weights. You'll get strong. Like, it may be easier for someone to get strong quicker, but if you put in enough, if you have enough resilience and tenacity and inexorable personality in your efforts, you will demonstrate success in that skill set. You will master your craft. I'm sure a big part of your ability to pitch actually came from the rejection you faced in your earlier career. Is that correct? You become witty. Your mind operates at a 
a different response rate. The latency between question and answer is minimized because you have this neurocognitive development where you've envisioned this answer before because you've been asked this question so many times. And when you respond concertedly, calmly, confidently with a good, powerful answer and a buildup, kind of like how I just did, you can really wow someone, right? So there's definitely this thespian aspect where you're a performer and you need to know how to use dramatic engagement and the tone and pitch of your voice. At the same time, you need to know the hell you're talking about. I can do these code switching because I've lived these realities and it all kind of blends together. And that all comes down to just being comfortable and being confident when you engage with people. And because I know what I'm talking about, I just feel more comfortable talking. So now you are ready to go full-time then after you raised a million dollars? No, no, no. So I wasn't. So we had raised a million dollars in 2018. And that was great. And, and it's Avnet, A-V-N-E-T. And we didn't have enough money, man. A million dollars is nothing when it's a hardware product. When you want to bring in salaried employees and set up health insurance and you need to make prototypes, like that wasn't even closely enough. And our, our CTO previously, and ironically, was at Avnet as well. So we had like found the CTO who had worked at Avnet. He's like, you know, a hockey player up in Canada. He loved it. He got it. He was like the CETO who we've always been looking for. Like, had we met this dude four years ago, it would have been great. But again, we wouldn't have lived that life and we wouldn't have de-risked the project. So like, I don't like to think with regret. That's not what I'm getting at. But just showing you how much valuable he was, he helped us raise that million dollar round as well because he was willing to take a risk. He was willing to take those design products from our previous CTO, extorted us, fix them up just enough to tweak them to build another working prototype so we can go convince Abnet, right? And then we had this mobile app coming. And so with that million dollars in the mobile app coming, now we're becoming more of a platform. So we've gone from hardware, smart tech, we're selling smart mouth guards, we're a mouth guard company, pivoted to a life science company that now has a platform that sells safety as a service. And so now that we can have subscription reoccurring revenue as well as hardware sales, now we have this billion dollar trajectory. Like if you're trying to put together a financial forecast on mouth guard sales, like you are not going to get to a billion dollar trajectory valuation, right? And that's what investors want to see. And I don't ever want to tell anyone to be unethical or fudge your numbers, but you need to have hockey stick growth curves on your five-year financials. And you need to be able to justify how you have enough money to meet those, right? You can't have a linear costing scale with a hockey stick sales pattern because like, all right, well, who's going to support that additional growth? Where's customer service going to come from? Who's going to handle returns? Like all those things you don't think about, like, what do you mean teen returns? Like, why would anyone return my product? Like, I don't know, because I don't like you because they're twats, like, because they feel like it. Like, you don't have to worry about the why, you just have to have your things. And so it's really important when you have your, your, I call a budget justification, that you have the ability to justify your budget. Here's our growth patterns, and here's the money that's going to go to that. And as we grow, our, our cost scale along with those things, and you need to be able to create a narrative. And I'm going to get a little abstract onto us, but humans for hundreds of thousands of years have been storytellers. We haven't had writing for very many millennia, but we've had the ability to communicate collective tribal knowledge for tens of thousands of years. In, in, in Africa, there's certain tribes that they have a desiccated storyteller. And his job is to take all the knowledge from the tribe, keep it, and then pass it along to the next storyteller. And so I believe that as, as a species, we've come to innately be able to tell stories. And the ability to tell a story, your story, your journey, 
is really, really important. And, you know, we are a company created by athletes for athletes. And I'll go back to our walk. We're doing this because we want to make sports safer, right? Like I don't talk about the product first. I don't talk about me. I talk about why we're doing this. I create a story. I get them emotionally connected to me as an individual. I talk about things that they can understand. I, I put them in a mental state of imagination by telling them, imagine this, <laughs> right? Almost like a stand-up comedian who, you know, Kevin Hart is one of the best storytellers. He can make you laugh from just telling a story about him going to the closet or something, right? Like it can be so funny because of how he uses his words, his tones, his inflection, his theater, his thespian side to deliver content. And you too, as you know, a founder or someone who's looking to raise money, make sure it's a personal story about you. That's, what, that's who they're talking to. That's who's pitching in front of them as a person. So be a person. M crack a joke. Make fun of someone. You know, I, I think that can't be dissuaded enough, but you know, kind of moving along, we've raised this money. We got the app working far enough. And in September of 2019, Avnet decided to double down and re-lead our Series A investment with a $9.3 cash investment and a $700,000 legal investment for a total of 10 million US. That was the point where I feel like, okay, we've made it to the starting line. Like, woohoo, we can start the race after seven bloody years of effort and tribulations and turbulence and stress and anxiety and depression, we now get to start being a company. I feel privileged to have been joined by such an incredible entrepreneur, Anthony Gonzalez. Thank you all so much for joining us for our first episode. And for more information on the FitGuard and to continue with Anthony on his inspiring journey, you can visit their website, at www.fitguard.me. This has been Nathaniel Chapman. Follow us and hit that subscribe button for more exciting stories of entrepreneurs in the making.